0: Good. All right. Good morning. Formal welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. It's good to see you all. Um, all right. So this morning, we are going to look at the topic of espionage. All right. Espionage. So here's the deal. I used to be a spy. Kidding. Joking. So espionage. <laughs> can't talk about it i can only but as we'll see today we're all meant to be spies okay so all of us hashtag i am a spy you it's a very long hashtag you are a spy we are all spies all right hashtag over here's um here's the deal famous spies in history who's got some who's got some famous spies in history give me some names who mother harry Mata Harry, who was he that? He for the Germans in World War I. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, famous spies in history. Uh, spies James Bond. Bond. Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie Cohen. James Bond. Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. I was waiting for that one. Yes. He Benedict Arnold. He wasn't a spy. He was a traitor. Well, I think spies he was a sp- the yeah, the he spy. Yeah, he was a spy for the oh. British. Yeah, and that's, what he, that's when he turned on I didn't realize his I didn't fellow know. Americans. That hey, whole thing. What about those guys that Moshe sent down? Oh, hold on, hold on. You can't, you can't run to the to the biblical story. We're starting off, We're getting a running start here. Philbrick. Philbrick. Yeah, wasn't that? I don't know. The American Could be. The most famous spies, the Rosenbergs. Oh, I was waiting for that one as well. That was a. Remember the Rosenbergs? Yeah, they were executed. Yeah. Yes. There's still controversy they, to this no, day. They were well, the husband for sure was the question about the wife. My, All right. My brother-in-law's father was their personal doctor. Okay. He said they were guilty. Bre- well, if he said <laughs> if your brother-in-law, then said, then for sure. Said. I know. I hear you. About? And there's maybe uh, maybe there's Pollard. Yeah, Yeah. yes, yes, Pollard, right, 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 Jonathan Pollard. Okay, so famous spies industry. Now, along these lines, let's talk about what makes spying effective. So if you wanna be a spy, because after all today, this is spy school, Kabbalah spy school edition, right? So if you're looking to be a spy, what's the key to good espionage? I'll tell you, well, let's go around. What do you guys think? What's the key to being a good spy? Information, getting, information. getting information. But how do you get the information? The ability to fit in. Ability to fit in. Excellent. Good. Like, for example, if somebody was trying to infiltrate, like, infiltrate, uh, like, rabbinics, they would have to dress and look like a rabbi, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. So <laughs> So it's about fitting in. Good. What You're else? into that problem a lot, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Everyone typecast me. <laughs> I play the rabbi. All right. But what it's else? Perfect. Perfect dialect. Perfect dialect. The best guys for Israel were were folks that lived in Iraq, that had a a perfect Jews, that had a perfect accent and and would be accepted into the Arab community. Right. And unfortunately, you know, as we all know, there aren't many of those left because, you know, they uh, they had to leave um, Iraq. Right. Specifically um, Baghdad. So Right, so it's about fitting in, and that includes the language, the accent. Good, what else? What else, keys to espionage? Being incredible with your story when you present it to you. Excellent, family. good, you have a credible story. There's a reason why you're there and what you're doing, there's a backstory. You give enough information to sound credible, not too much to sound over-eager, just enough, and obviously you gotta keep that story straight, and not contradict it. What else? and Courage. Excellent. I'd sing before I even started to talk. That's it. I'm guilty, just so you know. I am a spy. Let's have lunch. Right? It would be like, just come right. Yeah, I'm with you. By the way, I have a great story about that. A Hasidic story about espionage and, and bravery and courage and fear. What else? Keys to espionage. Relationship building. Relationship building. Excellent. Excellent. Right? Build the relationships. Why is that critical? Not only for the cover story. Trust. Trust. And really to gain the information, right? To get the information, you're going to have to build those relationships. You know the phrase con, right? (laughs) As if no one's heard that before. Have you heard of uh, bagels? Right. So the con, right? What's a con? Con is really short for confidence scheme. What's a confidence scheme? Confident. Why is it called confidence scheme? (laughs) It's because you're gaining the trust of someone. Relationships. Right, with the story, et cetera, with the language fitting in, you're gaining the trust of someone and you're getting their you're getting their guard down to the point where they begin sharing, or you can get access to what you want to get gain access to. Right? Classic Tinder swindler action. I'm kidding. Whatever, it's like right, it's just gaining trust. Looking around to see who's got me. Right. It's gaining trust and then exploiting that trust. That's what espionage is about. It's a confidence scheme. Classic confidence scheme. It's a con. It's the art of the con. Now, with that being said, there are, in my opinion, and, and this I think will cover kind of what, uh, what we've been talking about, there are, some, there are two primary components to successful espionage, to being a successful spy. Number one, You have to be inside. Number two, you have to be outside. Let me explain. Number one, you have to be inside enough where you gain access. But number two, you have to always remember that you're only there to exploit, to get the information, and then to pass it along. In other words, if you infiltrate, there's a better word than that. If you, like, what's the, I don't know. If you, like, play your character so well that you get lost in your character and your story and you kind of like this person that you become, guess what? You might forget to relay the information back home because these you are your friends now. you become a double spy. Then you become a double agent, and that's next week's class. That's already high level, that's already double spy. Forget about it. No, but, right, so if you get too entrenched in the story, if you become too comfortable with the character, if you become too, um, if you have too much of an affinity with, with the people, well, then you're probably not going to betray them, correct? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't betray if you, if you if you've fallen in love. So if you get too close, it's also not good. So number one, you have to be inside, but not too inside, right? You have to you have to infiltrate, but always remain outside. Also with you're going to be yes. That duplicity is born of this duality. Now here's the thing, if you are detached because you're aligned with your people, whoever they are, whatever, I mean, who are we spying for? Is it a country? Is it a rogue organization? I don't know, I'll let you decide. But whoever that is, right? if you're too aligned with them that you can't like, let yourself connect with the other side, well then guess what? You're never going to get in, gain access. You're never going to get that information. You have to be open. You have to build those relationships. Right? You have to get in. But if you get in too close, you're not going to be able to get out. You have to be able to be in and out at the same time. You know what this sounds like? Stealth. What? You have to be stealth. Stealth. But you know what else this sounds like? Like the soul. This is the story of our lives. Think about it for a second. God sends the soul into this world. Why? Kabbalah shares the following. And many of you may have, have heard this concept before, but it's a very important concept, and it's a concept that the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak, or as he's known in English, Isaac, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the, the great Kabbalist of Safed in the uh, 1500s, so he writes extensively about this. So here's a little bit of ba- a, a backstory. The mystics explain that there was a reality before our reality. In other words, before any of this and the entire structure of this, in other words, the the planes above our uh, physical existence, before any of this existed, there was another reality. And that reality is called Olam HaTohu, which is, and we've talked about this in previous classes, it's the world of Chaos, the world of chaos. There is Olam HaTohu and Olam Hatikun, the world of chaos and the world of Tikun, which means repair. You may have heard the phrase Tikun Olam, mm-hmm. to fix the world, repair the world. Right? That's our, loosely speaking, that's our job to repair the world. That phrase, which has been used for many sorts of, uh, of virtuous projects, that phrase ori- originates in. Jewish mystical thought. So here's, here's the breakdown of this. Now, and you find this in the beginning of, of, of the Torah, in the beginning of Genesis, where there's one line slipped in there in the first few verses of the Bible where it says that the world was chaotic and void. Tohu vavohu. Use the word tohu. Tohu. Not tofu. That's something else. That's something completely different. <laughs> That's completely That's void. Completely, huh? well, yeah. That's completely void. Hey, Sandrine, good morning. Good to see you. So this is this is Tohu. What is Tohu? Tohu is chaos. The way chaos is defined in Kabbalah is as follows, very simple. The light was too big for the vessels, the vessels shattered. Simple analogy? Simple analogy. You expose, God forbid, expose the eye to too much light, what happens to the eye? it can get blinded, it can get damaged. Right, so light is good. Too much light is not good. Can you have too much of a good thing? Absolutely. Right, so you think, okay, a little bit of light, okay, more light, better, the more light the better. But too much light, now you're going backwards. Now it's not good. When you have too much light for the vessel, for the recipient, for the container, the container can get harmed. So in the language of Kabbalah, in this primordial world of chaos, of Tohu, the light, morning Sam, the light was too big, we got a few open seats, here, here, wherever you're comfortable, the light was too big for the vessel, and because of that, the vessel shattered, again, now now we might picture this in a very physical way, like, like a physical bowl, or pottery, that's now in shards, and that's a bit of a a misunderstanding because we're not talking about something physical per se. But nonetheless, the language of Kabbalah is that the vessels shattered. And the fragments of those vessels form the very base of our reality, the world of Tikkun. Why is this world called the world of Tikkun? You know why? Because our job is to fix the broken vessels, to pick up the pieces. Tikkun Olam doesn't just mean recycling doesn't just mean right the way it's used today. Tikalalam, repair the world, um, recycle. All of these are virtuous causes, but in its original um, uh, conception, the mystics formed this phrase to indicate our spiritual work of elevating the broken or gathering and elevating the broken shards of those vessels that broke. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. So here's here's what this means. Yes. not a collective. Well, it, it's both. There's yes, it's a cumulative effort. Correct. So, what do you say the spiritual shelves are? Um, let me explain. When it, so, we're going to use a simple example, an example that we all know and love. I am drinking tea right now. Why? Because I am British at heart. <laughs> and I don't drink. Co- and I drink. I, yes, and I don't drink coffee because coffee makes like my heart race a little bit, my mind gets a little like it's just it's too much it's too much i'm already kind of high strung yeah. coffee kind of puts me over the edge huh yeah. maybe i don't know I never had like too much of a <sighs> anyway so um so when we eat or drink, so the mystics say the like say say the fallen food is a physical substance, and it it comes from Dimensions of reality lower than ourselves. So, the way um, Kabbalah divide, and really Jewish philosophy divides the world is in four, on four levels you have Domeim, Someach, Chai, and Medaber. So, translated, these are the world, the inanimate world, vegetation, animals, and human beings. This is what we would call the taxonomy of, of, of creation, of existence right? Inanimate means earth, stones, water, anything that doesn't have, a, um, doesn't grow or move. Then you have vegetation, stuff that grows, but, but it doesn't move, right? Unless it's a school play. A sustenance from, the- from the inanimate, exactly, right? So it draws, right? And then you have um, animals, right? That can not only grow, but also roam. And then you have human beings that have, you know, the unique human intelligence, etc. The Kabbalist asked the following question. Typically, the way it works, when you kind of think about how structures work, the thing on the bottom needs the thing on the top, right? In other words, the, the lower entity needs the upper entity to exist, not the other way around. So then why is it that human beings require food now, we take this for granted. Of course you need to eat. Obviously, we don't think twice. But the mystics ask the question, why do we need food and food that comes from lower planes of existence? That doesn't make sense. How can they give us energy? How does it make sense mystically, spiritually, conceptually, philosophically, that a human being who's up here on whatever, right? On said say the food chain, but I don't really mean. Right, up here would require animals, vegetation, inanimate, why would a human being require lower elements? And again, I know you're thinking to yourself, well, because you need to eat, but rewind that. Why would this be created in such a way where the higher thing needs the lower thing? The mystics give the following explanation. They say that in truth, what appears to be lower is actually higher. Why? Because The lower, it's in the lower elements of existence that those broken shards from the world of Tohu fell. You with me on that? Remember I told you about the world of chaos where the the, the light was too big for the vessel, the vessel shattered? What happened to those shards, those sparks? Where are they? They're embedded in the lower substrates of reality. And it's the human being's job to go in and to extricate, kind of like a spy mission. To extricate those sparks so every time we eat and drink for example and we're eating something and we're eating it in a way that we're we're being mindful about the food that we're eating and we're thinking that i'm eating this to gain energy in order to um elevate the experience sorry in, try that again we're eating with the intention that we're gaining the energy in order to do the next positive thing that lifts the sparks. What we're doing is basically separating out the shell from the spark. We're separating out the husk from the kernel inside. The, the, the physical pleasure of the food is being separated out from the energy, the divine energy in the food. And we're utilizing the divine energy as fuel to do the next good thing, positive thing in this world. Well, then guess what happens? The spark is elevated. It's extracted. It's extracted. And that is reclaiming the spark or the fragment of the world of chaos that is embedded in the stuff in this world. Does that make sense? Even if we don't say a bracha over it? A bracha is, um, is, a t- is, is, is important in and of itself and it's also a tool to help remind us the blessing before we eat it, to help us be mindful of why it is that we're eating. In other words, to think that when we're hungry we're going to start remembering, ah, wait a second, it's not just about my bodily hunger, but it's about my the spiritual opportunity here that is that's very ambitious the blessing that we recite allows us to take a moment before we eat pause and hopefully be mindful about this experience to then make it a meaningful experience it exactly. just in, in creation that the first the total was, and then it's, yes so it happens before their people or even correct after, so correct the first thing in creation was the matter mm-hmm. the and that matter yes i've and well that's said where it is. yes and the matter has this stuff. so for example it says in the books of Kabbalah that in that in Egypt there were 202 sparks shards same thing spark shards of the of the vessels that were embedded in Egypt when it says vegam rav Mahem that the erav rav they took out the erav rav the rav what's rav 202 right the gematria speaking of numerology the numerology of rav Reish Bet, is 202 it says 202 sparks of 288. It says rapach, 288. wish I had this uh, printed out. Elohim merachefet al It says in the opening verses of Genesis, and the Spirit of God, God hovered over, o- over the land, over the earth. The word hover, merachefet, <laughs> merachefet. So, um... It's comprised of the letters rapach, reish, pei, chet. Reish is 200, pei is 80, and chet is 80. 288 sparks in total. Of those 288, 202 were collected in Egypt by the Exodus. Now it sounds like after that's done, it should be a short hop to complete the mission. However, However, sparks are tricky and they've subdivided and subdivided. And so this is the way Kabbalah explains it. And thus, every physical, um, I don't know, every physical activity that we engage in, there's always two ways to do it. There's a way to succumb to the physicality, to the materiality of that experience, or there's a way to maintain our spiritual integrity while being involved in that physical experience and elevate it, elevate that experience for a higher purpose or be mindful about it as a higher purpose. I, I've used this example many times, and I'm sure many of you have heard me say this before, but when you go fill up your car with gasoline, or I, that doesn't always work now, because electric cars, but all right, back in the day when they were still using gasoline for automobiles, right, you would show out, you would go to the gas station, we go to the gas station, you, you swipe, I don't know, you put in your card, they lock it down, you ever see that? They lock your card, can't even pull it out. Hold you hostage until you get the pin number right. Like, who can remember that? Right. So then, yeah, you get your you you toggle it up, and you do it. I've never seen anybody take a selfie next to the gasoline. I've never seen it. Right? Oh, I got the 93 this time. I've never seen that. But when it comes to food, all the time we're blogging our food. In other words, when it comes to gasoline, we're very much attuned to the fact that it's a very utilitarian, it's very functional. We're filling up in order to keep on driving. But when we eat, because food is so, I don't know, it's so laden with sparks, the more sparks, the more covers over the spark. The brighter the light, the more opaque the shell covering that light. That's the way it works. Everything has to be balanced. So the greater potential, that's why you look, where is the greatest danger, physical you know, danger? Always in the place with the greatest opportunity. It's always like that. Right? The greatest light is always covered with the greatest husk. You guys with me on this? Yeah, Rob, can I ask you two questions? Yes. Um, firstly, if the food that you're eating without the brokha is a burger uh, for McDonald's, what does that mean for what you just talked about? Good. Excellent uh, question. The second question is, you were talking about espionage and you've moved on to a slightly different subject, and I'm trying to connect where you... I, to- I will make the connection. Don't worry. Okay. The connection is you have to get in but remember why you're getting in. You can't elevate the sparks in the food without eating. But if you forget why you're eating and you get all in, then you're not going to elevate the sparks either. Same thing with spying. You have to be able to be in and maintain your perspective without. I've said too much. All right, anyway, but getting back to your question. So it says, in so basically kosher, the definition of kosher is that which is ready to elevate. So the definition of kosher, it says that as, like in, in um, Jewish legal terminology, mutar and asur. Mutar means permitted, asur means forbidden. What does that mean? Literally, mutar. Me, literally, the meaning of mutar means untied, and asur means tied, like tied, t i not tied like tied down, right? Locked down. So things that are asur means that the shell is so opaque that you can't go into it and extract it in a normative fashion. The only way to, to, to allow that light to break through is by rejecting it. By rejecting it, that's how we attain it. So things that are forbidden, you don't elevate it by engaging with it. You elevate it by, by, by not engaging with it. Things that are permitted, right? Which is where food comes in, right? Things that are permitted, that Those would be the areas in which you can go in, get the spark, and get out. So that's literally the definition of mutar asur, forbidden and, and permitted. Kosher so or not kosher? Yeah. Yes. The only food there is trade. Yeah. That's a great question. Do you say a blessing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> we would have to look. That's a very good question. No, I'm, Sam, I'm out of habit, you probably would. Right, you probably would. You probably would, no different. <laughs> By the way, Mike, it's not such a theoretical question. Well, my grandfather was, um, he went to the draft office, World War II. He was in, he lived in Brooklyn. He was, he, well, was, he was in the same, he grew up. Dad. So, well, he didn't end up going, but I'll tell you what happened. So he was, he was born in 1922, grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, right near Crown Heights. Um, when, when Labavich came over to America and opened up the yeshiva so he transferred from his yeshiva to that yeshiva and, and the previous rebbe said um, that my stu- none of my students are going to have to go fight in the war and go back there etc and so he went to the uh, you know he gave them a blessing that they would be safe he went to the office or whatever where they were you know like the, the drafting office I don't know what it was called draft office, draft office. It was on Whitehouse. and where was that horse. in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, <laughs> so so he goes there, huh? <laughs> so he goes there. So he goes there, and uh, he he was he was in good physical condition, and he's he's uh, going through all the all the different stations. You know, they check your eyes, they check your whatever, they check all the other things, and um, he gets to the last station, and it's a psychiatrist. And it's a Jewish guy. How does he know he's Jewish? I don't know. Either he had his name there, or he looked. Jew- whatever. He was a Jewish guy. So he said. Doctor, that was a song. So he's right. So he says, So he looks at him. So this doctor looks at my grandfather, and he says, "So where do you go to yeshiva? Jewish. Where do you go to school?" He says, "Labavich, Chabad Labavich." Oh, ah, They make very good soldiers, right? <laughs> you fo- you like to follow orders, right? You have a rabbi. You follow orders. What he says. My grandfather's like getting nervous. <laughs> he said, Let me ask you a question. If you're on the front lines and there's no other food around, right, and you're dying of hunger and the only thing there is pork, would you eat it? That's your question, right? But he didn't ask about the bracha. So would you eat it? My grandfather said, Yes, I would. But then I would probably. <laughs> he said, Anyway, so he's. He, he, what's the code when you were rejected? What's that? What was that? code? 4F. 4F. He gave him the 4F and that was it. Anyway, he smiled and I think he was like trying to play with him a little bit. He like smiled. He said, all right, you'll make a good soldier. And then he stamped it, but it wasn't. Anyway, what's, it's a good question. The point here with the food is that food has, you know, food is, it's such a challenge. And I, 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 I said this quickly before, the great in life when it comes to physical things, the greater the challenge, when I say challenge, I mean, the more complicated it is, right? And uh, you, you can use your imagination, but the more complicated something is, it's for one reason, because there's greater light in there. And the greater the light, right, the potential for holiness, the greater it is masked with all sorts of other possibilities as well, because that's the way it works. If great light was readily available without work, that would create an imbalance of free choice. That would make the light easy to attain. And that's not the way God created the world in a perfect balance, which means perfectly balanced between the possibility for goodness and the opposite. It's always perfectly balanced. So the greater the opportunity for holiness, the greater the challenge is gonna be. So if you wanna know where the light is, just look where the darkness is. That's the rule, that's the Kabbalistic rule of thumb. If you wanna know where the greatest light is, Look where the greatest challenge is, and that's true collectively or personally. Look at those areas that you find the most challenging. That's probably where your purpose is. That's very likely where your purpose is. Now, not always are we gonna are we gonna get it right, what but that's yes. It's in working on relationships and working on patience. That's where. Again, I I can't say this definitively, but that's where the mystics would say, look there. That's probably where the greatest opportunity and breakthrough will lie, and and the purpose. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. Think about reincarnation. Kabbalah explains reincarnation along these exact lines. Every soul has just the doctrine of sparks, the broken vessels and the sparks to, to to reclaim and fix. That explains the pretty much the totality of life and history and purpose. It's such a such a magnificent um, exposition of Kabbalah, it's become the literal foundation of, of, of all of modern Kabbalah. Every soul has specific sparks that it is meant to elevate. Every soul has its specific subset of sparks that only it can, that only it can find, seek, and uplift. No one else can, no one else is intended or, or, or is meant to uplift those sparks. Which is why every person has a unique journey through life. No one's walked your journey or my journey. No one's walked the same journey. Even if they, two people grow up in the same household, same parents, they have different journeys, different personalities, different opportunities, different relationships, everything is different. And the, and the, and the, the, the reason behind this is because everyone's soul, before they're born, is attributed to a certain collection of sparks that are embedded in this world. Like the Baal Shem Tov says, wherever you find yourself in the world, it's because you have been sent there to elevate something in that space. So you were flying to LA and now you were diverted or there's a delay, whatever, in Kansas City. And you think it's an accident, ah, oh, unbelievable. Now I'm delayed. The mystic, a mystical way of looking at this, capitalistic way of looking at this, what's the opportunity? Somebody once wrote to the Rebbe that he's sick. Who was this? Maybe Gershon Bear um, Jacobson, maybe? Somebody wrote to the Rebbe once that he was in the hospital, sick, and he was asking for a blessing for, for recovery. YY's. Huh? YY's. Yeah, I think it was Wawai's dad. I think so. So um, Simon Jacobson's dad also. So I, um, so, I th- so I think it was him. The Rebbe writes back, when you finish the reason, when you've completed the, the, the purpose for why you were in the hospital, why you're in the hospital, then you'll get healthy. In other words, then you you're in the hospital, you think you're in the hospital because you're sick. You're in the hospital, It's a different way of looking at it. There's a there's something there, there are sparks there that need to be elevated. That's why you're in that space. I know I, I, oh, I want to say something. Yeah. yeah. Shimona Satonic? Yeah. I just did a retreat with her. Shimona's she incredible. I know. She's amazing. He she said, instead of saying, Why did God do this to me? Flip the paradigm and say, why did God do this for me? Right. Powerful. Yeah. Right. Not to me, but for me. There's an opportunity here. Baal Shem Tov says, God leads the footsteps of man. Wherever a person finds themselves, it's because there is an element of their original soul purpose in that space. So you find yourself in a place, in a situation, in, in, a, in, a, in a circumstance, and you can't explain it. It's like, why did this happen? Why am I here? Why is this person in my life? There is a spark or a collection of sparks. There is something there that is intentional. And typically, so how do we, how do we know what those are? So the mystics say either where you find yourself or where you find the challenge. You find the challenge. If, we, if a person finds themselves in a challenge with their temper, it's very likely, again, who am I to say definitively, but it's very likely that their purpose is in that space. In that space, and if we mess it up, what happens? We have to find ourselves in another position. So that's where reincarnation. Oh, so, <clears throat> so the short answer is before reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Think about um, Jonah. Remember Jonah? The whale. The whale. Yeah. God sends. God says, "Okay, here, Jonah. Your mission is to go to Nineveh and go deliver this news." And, and and okay. And so Jonah says, "Not interested." Yeah. Yeah, Ninveh, No way. He's like, Ninve. I'm out of here. Find I'm, out. I'm headed. Yeah. He's like, I'm not. I'm out. I'm headed to Tarshish on a boat. I'm taking a cruise. Right. Better than an Alaskan cruise. God will see you when you ignore him. This right. Is a, this, this is. is a... Hold on. It, it's happened once or twice. Even for us, I would say. Right. So. So what happens? So he runs away. There's a storm and a this and a that and everyone's panicked and he's sleeping. And they come to him. The, the, the boat's sinking. What's going on? He says, I know why it's me. You can throw me overboard. And he tries to, and then he gets swallowed by by a fish and spit out. And God says, now are you ready? Mm -hmm. But isn't that that, that the story of our lives? We run away from the challenges. We run away from the hard stuff. Sometimes we run away from the hard stuff, from the hard work to crack the shell and get the spark. You can't really run away from your purpose. Because you'll just find yourself back. It might be a different person. maybe might be a few years later. It might be different. The names and dates may have changed. But the story is the same. Until we literally crack the code. Yeah. So where does God's will versus free will come into all that? God's will is. God decides what sparks you get. Right. What your challenge is. All that stuff. We choose how to respond in that situation. Really. Really, I love what Donna said, um, quoting Shimona. It's Free choice begins with the, um, the perception. Is it to me or for me? That's where free choice. I, God doesn't decide whether I look at myself as a victim or as an opportunist. Joseph, sold by his brothers as a slave, finds himself in Egypt, framed for a crime that he doesn't commit. He's now in a dungeon. And the Torah says that one morning he notices that the butler and the baker are looking a little sad. And he says, what's wrong? We had a dream. What's your dream? They tell him the dream. He interprets the dreams. Two years later, the butler um, remembers him and pulls him, and they pull him out of, uh, of prison, and he's now interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, becomes second in command, the rest is history. It was two years he was in prison. Was two more years after that. Two years. That was because he just asked them to he, help. Or yeah. It he was really kind of, God helps those who help themselves. That's, okay, so we'll leave that question. That, that, that question good. I don't want to address, but... Because it's that's a very good point, but but here's the thing. What's the key to that story? He asked the butler and the baker, "How you doing today? Why do you look so downcast? Why do you look so sad? Why do you look so sad? You're in jail together. Why do you look so sad? Oh, why do you look sad? And who cares why they look sad? I'm the victim. Joseph could have said, "I'm the victim." I'm a guy 17 years old. His brothers kidnapped him, threw him in a pit, and then sold him as a slave. He finally ekes out a living, framed for a crime that he didn't commit, thrown in prison. And he should care about how someone else feels? Why would he ever care? Why would he ever care to say, Lama Penechem Roim Hayom? Why are your faces sad today? That's literally the quote Lama Penechem Roim Hayom. Why are your faces sad today? Literally, who cares? I'm the, I'm, I'm playing Joseph now, I'm the victim, I don't care how you feel, I'm wallowing in self-pity. He never looked at himself as a victim, as a two. Life never happened to him. Life happened for him. Wherever he was, there was an opportunity. So when he was in working for Potiphar, there was an opportunity. When he was in, in, in the dungeon, there's an opportunity Pharaoh, there's an opportunity. There's always an opportunity to the point. And he said this himself later on in the narrative. When his brothers finally break down and apologize for what they did, for selling him as a slave, he says to them with these unforgettable words, you didn't send me here. You didn't sell me here. He says, you didn't sell me here to Egypt. God sent me here. That's the difference. You didn't sell. I'm not a victim of another person. God sent me here. And that perspective, he asked about free choice. No one, can, no one can, pl- can implant that perspective in anyone's mind. But when you have that perception, when you have that perspective, everything changes. And so Kabbalah encourages us to see the world and the opportunities around us as literal opportunities with sparks and in and, and a, and a, and a very specific purpose, I'm here for a mission. I'm here for a purpose. The challenges, my vices, you know, the opportunities—they're all part of this dynamic of spark seeking. Now, one more, a few more things that are very important, like a key fob to a car, right? You could have a dealership with um, 100 Honda Accords, but that key fob only unlocks the one that it's designated for. The same thing is true with souls and sparks. The sparks that are associated with my soul only I can unlock and your soul and your sparks only you can unlock, which is why a depth of Kabbalistic explanation on the do not covet. Why do not covet? Think about it. The stuff that God has given you and the stuff that we've created, God has given us, let's be honest here, right? The stuff that we allegedly have, oh no, I got that. Sure, it's like the joke with the parking spot. You know that joke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Never yeah. mind. Cue up number 18, right? <laughs> <Never mind. laughs> joke 18. Just for yeah. those that don't know it. This guy, is, this guy has a very important meeting, and he gets to the parking lot, and there's no spaces. So he's like, he's desperate. He's like, oh, man, I need a space. He's like, God, please, like, I need a space. Does another round, no space. God, I'm going to go to synagogue. I'm going to pray, you know, this week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, God, I'm going to give tzedakah. I'm going to, like, that. nothing. All right, God, I'm going to, like, he starts promising the world the fourth time around, a spot opens up. It's like, you know what, God? I got a spot. Forget it. Deals off. I got this. Right? That's the joke. We make deals. And then when things happen, it's like, oh, no, I did that. Right? No, no, that was me. Like, I needed God when I needed, but when I got, oh, that was me. That's the, that's the, that's like Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh's like, oh, please take away the plague. And then the plague goes away. And he's like, okay, now you're still <laughs> slaves. Yeah. I haven't changed my mind. Actually, on second thought, things are still good the way they are. That's the that's the Pharaoh mentality. How do we know when we've grabbed hold of that spark, that shard, how do we know uh, we accomplished that? Well, it goes, it makes a little sound, Does and it? then you see the well, coin, the rings. top right, yeah, top right of the screen, you see <laughs> the counter, <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, the jackbot it really, no. so it, So that's also part of the challenge. The challenge is that we don't always see the light it's not like we get infused we don't always see it i think the more we do it the more we get attuned to that and, and, and but it doesn't always we don't always have that that immediate feedback which makes it more difficult but that also allows for the free choice but anyway the point of the the point of this idea is that that when it comes to do, the the mitzvah of do not covet right the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments 10 out of 10 um is do not covet your neighbors this that or the other the mystical understanding of this is because your house, your spouse, et cetera, it's you, the, the stuff that's yours, not yours, right, the, that which is associated with you, that's where your purpose is. Why would you want someone else's stuff? You couldn't unlock those sparks if you tried. In other words, forget about coveting as, like a, as a personal moral failing. Think about it as a waste of time. What are you going to do with this stuff? It's not yours anyway. It's, it's, un, it's unaccessible. So you're running after someone else's life? Why? What's the point? As Mark Twain or somebody once said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> right? Everyone else is, is, is spoken for. It. Be yourself. So Kabbalah says, so again, this doctrine of the sparks is so powerful. And again, getting back to food, because food is really, it's not the only thing that's, that's complicated, but food is complicated. So when it comes to food, the mystics say the following, that the food that is in front of us, right, especially thinking about a breakfast like this morning, the food that's in front of us, there's two ways to experience it. One is from a body place, my body is hungry, and the other one is my soul is hungry, in a certain sense. And the Baal Shem Tov says, that you know what when our body is hungry, you know why the body is hungry, because the soul is really hungry. The body's hunger is really an indicator of the soul. He uses just a really incredible, incredible explanation of, of another biblical phrase. You know the, you know remember the verse in the Torah that says, uh, "For not on bread alone does man, for man does not live on bread alone, but rather on the word of God." Yeah, I think there was a commercial back in the 80s uh, for the for like a burger, for like a fast food place. Man does not live on bread alone. Like, don't forget, where's the beef, right? Like, don't, don't forget the burger. Right, but man does not live on bread alone, but rather on the word of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? The way the mystics explain it, consistent to our topic today is, is that we don't live. We're not sustained by the food as much as we are by the spark in the Word of God, inside the food. The the food experience, the the eating experience, is not just a gastronomical one for the body. It's a soulful one for the soul. It's one in which we're meant to, to get in, elevate the spark, and what that means is not some sort of supernatural, mystical experience. It's literally understanding. It's going in with the perspective that the food has energy, and the energy is intended for me to energize my body and my spirit make my mind sharper, make my, right, give me the ability to function so that I can do the next good thing. I cannot do a mitzvah, I cannot help someone else out without that energy. When it comes to making money, it's the same thing. It's the meditation is I'm earning money, yes, for myself, but also to do great things with it, do important things with it. It's a meditation that, tra- that transfers the experience from a consumer experience to an elevatory experience. I'm no longer taking, but I'm giving. And I'm part of this larger continuum. I'm elevating the spark. I'm elevating the spark in the sense that I am understanding that this thing exists not for my own pleasure, but for a purpose. And I exist not for my own pleasure, but for a purpose. Does that make sense? So a life infused with a spark first perspective is where we look at everything Like think about the matrix where you don't see the physical facade anymore. You see like the energy flowing through it. This has sparks. This has potential. This is upliftable. This is elevatable. I'm creating new words perhaps, right? This is purposeful. This is not just for my own pleasure. This is not just for my own consumerism, right? I'm not just a consumer, but I'm actually a partner. This is what tikkun olam really means in its original conception. Tikkun Olam, which literally means to fix the world, to repair the world. What does that mean? It means to elevate the sparks. It means to see everything around us as laden and latent with potential. And not just something to consume or destroy. There's beauty in this. There's divine light in this. How do we cultivate it? How do we bring it out? And part of that is, not a part, a necessary part of that, is to separate the outside from the inside. This explains one of the most perplexing stories in the Torah. When we talk about espionage, and I explained before that it's really about the art of the Khan, you know, one of the greatest cons in biblical history is Jacob. Oh, yeah. Was right. Slick. Taking the blessings. One of the greatest cons. So, to rewind, we all know the story Isaac, the dad, says to his older son Esau, I'd like to bless you before I pass away. Prepare some food that you know that I like. Come back, I'll eat the food, I'll give you a blessing. Great. His wife, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, the mother of Esau and Jacob, twins, tells her younger so the younger twin Jacob, put on your brother's clothes, dressed like your brother, put on because he was Esau, was Esau was hairy, put on uh, animal skins in your arms. and I'll, I'll make the food. I'll make the food. I got this. I know, I know what he likes. I know what he likes. I'll make the food. Go in. He's like, oh, what, I, what happens if my father feels my head? Oh, We got this. We got this covered. That's it. Isaac can't see. He's blind. He goes. So Jacob goes in. They have a conversation, him and his father. His father says, who are you? He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. He says, come here. He touches him. He says, Hakol, kol Yaakov, ha'yadaimede Powerful, powerful line. So the voice is the voice of Jacob. The arms, the hands, they feel like Esau. Can't, can't figure this out. You sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. This is, right? How do we explain this? How do we explain this duality? Anyway, eventually he eventually gives him the blessings. Didn't the qu- you tell him that he had a sore throat or something. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't his voice. It was that he said, "Father, please get up," or "Please bless me," or "Please, whatever. please sit up and and here's the food." He was too gentle. Esau was more like, "Get up, he was, here's the food. yeah, here's the food. Here's the food you wanted." So it wasn't the. Was, the voice it wasn't. It was wasn't. Yeah, say. it wasn't the. Um, it wasn't the voice, it was the it was the way the manner of speaking. The toxic but, and, masculinity. Toxic masculinity, right, exactly. did the thing. So let's talk about this. So everyone asked the question. How could Jacob, our forefather, our patriarch, Jacob, aka Israel, right? Israel, Yisrael. Jacob is renamed at some point or gets a second name, right? Israel, Yisrael. B'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel, like, everything is attributed to Jacob. How could he get his blessings in such, such a duplicitous, is that, is that the right word? Yeah. Fashion. Right? Scrabble word. You do it. Huh? Mother told you to do it. Simple answer, his mother told him. He listened to his mother. <laughs> but the deeper answer is, because that's what spying is. She was explaining what life is going to be like What is life going to be like? It means you're going to have to dress up like an Esau, but inside you're a Jacob. You're going to sit down at a meal like everyone else. Like everyone else. Sit down and eat. And on the outside, it looks identical. But on the inside, this is going to be a Jacob meal. On the inside, this will be for a purpose, for a meaning, for a higher purpose. In other words, dressing up in the garments of Esau, While you're Jacob, is the art of spying. The art of spying is, the art of the con is, that you fit in, but you're still different. And that's the key to unlocking and elevating the sparks around us. Doing all of the physical things, but doing it with a deeper intention and purpose. Does this make sense? This is what spying means. This is why Jacob had to get the blessings that way. Because if Jacob got the blessings looking like a Jacob... That would never create a template for what real life is. That would mean the only light is found in the light spaces. Where can you find the light? In the synagogue, in the mitzvah. But when eating, that's, that's a concession to physicality. There's no purpose here. Just get done with it and move on. Judaism has a radically different approach. And I'm using food as the, only ex- as the example, but we, again, you can use your imagination, apply it anywhere, right? The experience of eating, And Judaism is not a concession to a physical failing or frailty the body needs. The understanding, the the incredible mystical understanding elevates the food experience to a holy experience if done correctly, which means that the light is not just found in the light spaces, it's also found in the dark spaces. It's found in those spaces where it looks like an Esau experience. It looks like the realm of the hunter, the realm of the Esau, inside that space, is holy. So Rebecca says to her son Jacob, I want you to put on the clothes of Esau. Put on those clothes and then go in as Jacob. This was the first act of espionage. Not exactly gaining information, but in the context of going in, infiltrating, and then getting out, this is the first example. Make sense? Mm-hmm. With every successful spy, you need a duality. You have to be able to get in. You have to be able to get out. And even when you're in, you have to remain above. Rabbi Svi Freeman, prolific author, thinker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Spiritualist, lives here. Rabbi Tzvi Freeman has a book. The title is Be... Um, what is it? It's... Um, I'm forgetting the title. I may, I may be paraphrasing. I think I got it right, though. Be within, stay above. That's a duality. Be within, but stay above. Right? Be inside, but also outside at the same time. That's the only way it works. If you're not inside, you're not, you're not going to get the spark. If you don't eat, then you're not actually going to the spark. Someone who says, I'm going to be spiritual and I'll fast all day and eat bread and water, guess what? It's going to miss getting the sparks and the potatoes. (laughs) What about the hash browns? What about the hash browns? What about the sparks there? What about the bagel and the schmear? (laughs) Yeah, the schmear, right? What about the schmear? How are you going to get the sparks from the schmear? Unless you get into it. But if you're into it and you lose yourself, well, then, then you didn't elevate anything. You just became, you just lost yourself in the food. You have to be within, stay without. Everyday life. I don't have anybody I need to spy on or for you. Well not not so not to, that you know of. No, I'm kidding. How, <laughs> so how would I get in to elevate any sparks Maybe get into what Okay, so in the practical example, practical life it would mean the food that we eat, the relationships that we have, the work that we do, in all of those very physical arenas, there is a purpose. Right to think that the only spiritual purpose in life is in those overtly, obviously spiritual places, but the physical stuff is just, uh, whatever, that's just the physical stuff. That's, that's not the Jewish way of thinking. There's sparks, there's light in all of the spaces, including the very physical spaces. Right, And so that means when we eat, to elevate it to a higher experience, a blessing before and a blessing afterwards, mindfulness, inviting friends and family over, making it a, it's sharing words of Torah when we eat, like making it a making it a higher experience I use example again before with the money that we make it's recognizing that this is not just something that we're using spending or consuming but it's literal it's literal energy that can fuel incredible things it's like a tool for tremendous change um, and in, in in every area so you're right you, We're probably not going to become car-carrying spies anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But life is, and I I know I'm just using two examples, and there are plenty more that we can talk about, um, but life is really about um, this type of, this, this going in but staying out. Now, there's two other spy stories in biblical literature that I want to speak about. And these are found in the, hold on. These are found in the handout that I have prepared for today. So let's read these. Spies, part one, and spies, part two. Now, these are literal stories of spies. Please take them past. And the first one is what we read in yesterday's Torah portion in uh, synagogues around the world. It's the story of the biblical spies that Moses sends. Okay and the second story is the story of the spies that Joshua sends. Now today we thus far just just to kind of like contextualize where we're going with all this. Uh, no, I handed out this, but there should be more copies that there's uh, they're coming around again. There you go. Thanks. So uh, just to just to give a little bit of context again to reset to reset context. Um, thus far today, we kind of had a conversation about what is the energy of spying and successful spying? And then we spoke about um, how spying has a spiritual lesson for all of us because at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, right? we're all meant to be spies. We're meant to go in and then engage in the physical worldly activities but for a higher elevated purpose. That's really what life is. Life is about spying. You're in but you're pulling out, you're also getting, you're extracting uh, the energy, the sparks. There are some, and I, and I explained how that's the, the story of Jacob, where he dresses up like his brother, so it's a con, he conned his father, and, but really it's a, it's a metaphor about how to dress, and, and it looks like you're just doing it like everyone else, but really there's a deeper message, or there, there's deeper intention in that activity. There are two literal spy stories in biblical literature that I want to focus on today. Both pertain to the land of Israel. The first happens in the second year after the Exodus. The Exodus happened in the Jewish count of years 2448 from creation. It's one year later and the Jews now they've there's been a lot of drama thus far they got out of Egypt The sea split for them. They received the the Torah at Sinai. Uh, They sinned with the golden calf. They repented for the sin of the golden calf. They built a tabernacle, which is the portable sanctuary. And at this point, they are poised to enter the land of Israel. But before that, they pause. And they go to Moses. The people go to Moses and they say, before we go in, we would feel more comfortable and confident if there was some intel about what's going on on the other side of that border right? We're going to cross into a land where people are living and we're going to let them know what? That this is our promised land? Like, what's, what's the plan? Like, how are we going to do this? Who lives there? What do the cities look like if we're meant to conquer or put, like, what's, what, what, what are the facts on the ground? And so Moses asks God and God says to Moses, if you think it's a good idea, go ahead. I'm not going to tell you yes or no, which is a very interesting response. It should be a red flag. Right? <laughs> I'm not telling you yes or no. Do whatever you want. Because uh, the, the yesterday we re- literally read this yesterday, um, God says, "Shlach anashim, send for you." In other words, if you want, you can send. I'm not telling you, as Rashi points out. And so Moses says, "I think it's a good idea, and let's send the spies." They chose twelve men from the uh, from the, from the twelve tribes, one per tribe. By the way, some commentators say you know what the problem was. They they chose men, that was the problem. If the women, right? We spoke about this in our last series, last Kabbalah series, how the women always had more faith in the men, right? Sorry guys, facts are facts. So so um, like with the golden calf, the men, the only the men stood not the women. So if Moses would have sent the would have sent women as spies, oh, no, story. <laughs> it would have never blown up. But he sent men. There you go. Next thing you know, it's a fiasco. But let's, let's read this inside. And let me pull this up. Give me a second here. Let me pull this up on the Zoom so everybody can follow along together. Here we go. Okay. Spies part one. Boom. Oh, this is from yesterday's Torah portion. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The men and women both were punished by not going into the land Yes. Yes. Yeah. The men specifically were targeted. I would imagine that the women also passed away over the forty years, but it was the, the decree of passing away was really for the men between twenty and sixty. You're, what you, I think to reframe what you are saying as a question is: How many of the of the women between twenty and sixty died? And I mean, I guess you could say, like, uh, what are you going to do? Like, it's just everyone aged out. But I don't. The decree wasn't actually for the women to die out; it was for the men of that generation. It wasn't the real punishment because they didn't have faith. Yes yes was, I mean look how many miracles yes Hashem showed them through Moses and here... spoken as a woman as a believer exactly I what were the men that was the huh what were the men thinking I don't let's read the story inside spies part one the Lord spoke to this is from yesterday's story portion the Lord spoke to Moses saying send out for yourself of your own of your own choice men who will scout the land of Canaan which I am giving to the children of Israel You shall send one man each for his father's tribe. Each one shall be a chieftain in their midst. Which means basically God says, if you want to do this, it should be one spy per tribe. He doesn't use the word spy. Scout. One scout per tribe for a total of 12. So Moses sent them from the desert of of Paran by the word of the Lord. All of them were men of distinction they were the heads of the children of Israel. They were all like tribal leaders in uh, what we would say in Yiddish, big machers. What's a big macher? I don't know. Like a big macher. How do you translate a big macher? A big shah. They were all like all leaders. Okay, next. And it goes on. But I, I cut out three dots, right? Da, da, da. Next thing you know, they return from scouting the land at the end of 40 days. They went and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the desert, apparent to Kadesh. That was the city. They brought them back a report as well as to the entire congregation. So they reported back not just to Moses and Aaron. You see some missteps going on here. They called a press conference, which is weird because when the general sends you on a mission, who should you report back to? The The general. If you're sent on a mission, right, if you're military and you go on a mission, and then you come back, and the first thing you do is call a press conference <laughs> to let everybody know your findings. Clearly, you're probably looking for a little uh, covet, right? You're looking for a little fame. You're not, like, dedicated to the mission here. All right. Anyway, so they brought them back a report, Moses and Aaron, as well as to the, the entire congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They why, told them... So what do you say, why the what I'm saying is, you see clues here throughout this narrative that they were deviating from the mission that they were sent. It was self interested. Yes, they were scouts. They thought of themselves as spies. They were told they were to report back to the ones who sent them. Moses and Aaron sent them. They should go back to the Moses and Aaron. Who do they go back to? Them and the entire congregation. So they're calling now a press conference. So you see subtleties in their self interest, how they got carried away with themselves. Um, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They said to them, okay, they told, sorry, they told him and said, here's their quote. These are the, the, the report back. We came to the land to which you sent us, and it is flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. In other words, they're starting off by saying, the land is great. It's really beautiful. However, F, in Hebrew, it's FS, FS. Remember what FS means in Hebrew zero fs here says however you see they're about to reset the room it's beautiful but however total pivot 180 degrees the people who inhabit the land are mighty and the cities are extremely huge and fortified and there we saw even the offspring of the giant you see where they're going with this it's a great place to visit we're never going to live there there's no way to conquer this (laughs) land there's no what are we going to the cities are fortified they're locked down fortresses up to the skies Giants are living there, right? What are we? Bunch of Jews, right? Seriously, how is that going to happen? How are we going to get this done? We're not giants. We can't even crack six feet on a on a nor- no, All right, so let's continue. <laughs> they spread an evil report about the land which they had scouted, telling the children of Israel the land we passed through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of stature. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, descended from the giants. In our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we were in their eyes. That's the report. And who did they tell? Everybody. The entire community raised their voices and shouted. And the people wept on that night. You know what night that was? You know what day that was? I used to know. Tisha B'Av. The ninth of Av. That would become a day in infamy for our people the day that both holy temples in Jerusalem were destroyed, the first by the Babylonians, the second 490 years later, 500 years later, by the, uh, by the Romans. Both temples, both holy temples, the first built by Solomon, the second built by the returnees of the first exile, both temples were destroyed on the same Hebrew date. The expulsion from, from, um, from Spain in 1492, the Hebrew date, of the ninth of Av. It's a day that stands for Jews in infamy for sad things. And according to the commentaries, God said, you're crying? They wept that night. You're crying for what? For the promised land? I promised you a beautiful land and that you would be successful. And you're crying about it? You're crying? I'll give you a reason to cry. You're crying for nothing? You'll have a reason to cry on this day. Okay. It sounds like God is Should taking God retribution. Yeah. Yeah, you're crying. I'll give you a reason to cry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. God knew all this was going to happen. So he planned it all. But another. Yeah, but when you say God planned, you have to be careful. God knows, but that doesn't take away free choice. In other words, the story still plays out the way it plays out. But does God make people make bad choices? I, I don't know. The way the commentators explain it and the philosophers explain it is. He, To God, God is not stuck, God is not limited to the construct, to the limitations of time, linear time, right? Because time is a creation. It's something God created. Where does God create, where do we see in the Bible that God created time? It's the first word, in the beginning. You know what that means? Beginning is a time, start the clock. Beginning means at this point, time is going to go linear. Before that, there's no time. God is not limited by time or space. If God is limited by time or space, find another God. I mean, find a a better God than that. A God that's limited in time and space, we can do better than that. God is not limited, which means that even though in our reality, and this is the only reality we can fathom, even when we think of time travel, it's always linear. Even when we conceive of time travel, it's still, oh, we'll go back in time or forward in time. We can't get out of that way of thinking. Even science fiction can't unthink this. We're so stuck in this. God is not limited by any of that stuff. If, if God is a real God, which we're, we're, we're betting on, right, then God is not limited by any of this, Michigan, any of this craziness of, of, t- of limitations, time and space. If that's the case, then even though everything plays out for us linearly, God's already seen it happen. God already knows it's happened. Like, God is not stuck by watching it unfold. We're stuck watching it unfold. God's beyond that. So does God know what's going to happen? Sure. He's seen the movie. He's seen our choice. We're still making the choices. So we can but then he would have seen that. Yeah, but then he would, that's, he would have seen that. He's outside. It's like we're characters. Imagine a flip book. We used the example before. I don't know what I'm Grabbing for papers for no reason. So no, like imagine you had a flip book. Which remember those flip books? You like a stick figure, and you flip through it, and that guy is running or riding a bicycle or swimming, right? Right. So you're doing a flip book. So imagine you're the character. Imagine you're the guy. Remember we spoke about this in a course like years ago. You're the guy in the flip book, and so each page you're like you're doing something else. It's my robot dance also. I'm multitasking. <laughs> so so you're but you're stuck in that. But if you're in the book, but if you're out of the book, you can flip it this way, you can flip it that way, you, you see the beginning and the end. right? You're outside the whole experience. You're, you're, you live outside the space. God is outside this entire structure, which means that, God, yeah. If we have free will. God gave us free will. At every point in time, that story can change. Yes, absolutely. But since God is beyond time, so he can kind of see it, before it happens. But, he, but he's not interfering with it. No. 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 You can change it. Absolutely. Yes. Correct. He knows the end no matter what it is. Correct. No. He's seen the end. I, it hasn't played out yet. For you, it hasn't played out yet. For him, it's played out. He yeah, produced the end. Huh? He saw the end. He produced the end. He's, the whole thing, there's no, I, I, no but it's unfair. it's not changing, then you don't to. I mean, if, if God, if it's fixed, once you get to that point in time, it becomes fixed. For you. Yes, correct. God's looking at it where, yes, he, he knows everything, but he's still giving you the free will to change that. Yes, that point yes, yes. But he's not stuck in that, in that moment. No, no. Right, he's already it's seen right. that play out. This is the way, for example, the Tosvos Yomtev, the commentary on the Mishnah, this is how he explains it. Imagine a fortune teller who could see the future, conceptually, fortune who could see the future before it plays out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Call 1-800 fortune teller, yeah. So, all right, you have, it, you have your free choice. If you do the right thing, yes, as God said, hooray for you, if you do the wrong thing, a demerit. I mean, is it like that? I don't know if it's so stuck. Well, they, I think because every every yeah, and every missed opportunity opens up another opportunity. Sure, but again, the point here is that God is God is outside of this of this of this timeline construct. So what we see here is is like this: the first story of spying ends in disaster. Moses sends spies, and the next thing you know, the people are are, are crying, and. The aftermath of this, which I didn't, I, I didn't put in in this uh, in this handout. The aftermath of this is God says, "Oh, it was forty days scouting the land. They took forty days to tour the land to check it out. Forty years of wandering. Forty for forty. Thirty for thirty. What's he been? Thirty for world. thirty. Forty for forty. Huh? A lot of forties. A lot of forties. Yes, forty days in the mountain. Right, Moses. So forty for forty. Forty years for forty days. Thank God they didn't take their time and go fifty days or even longer. So forty for 40. And that was it. Out of the 12 spies, only two maintained that they could do it. Those were Caleb and Joshua. And those were the only two of the generation that ultimately went, of, of the men 20 to 60 years old at that time, that went into the land of Israel, Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses didn't go into the land of Israel, as we know, famously. Now, that's a story that ends in disaster. And you would think that after that story, sending in spies would be? Absolutely no. So if any other time in history, like let's say, for example, I don't know. I'm just spitballing. Let's say Joshua, right? Who was the the next leader after Moses because Moses passed away and now Joshua leads him into Israel. Imagine if Joshua was now confronted with the choice to send in spies or not. What what would you think he would say? No, 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 no no spies that we got stuck for 40 years last time. That's a bad idea, right? And yet, turn the page over to page number two. We'll do this very quickly because we've Officially run out of time, but we're just, this is bonus time. This is like a soccer match and you're not even sure what's going on as an American. I'm like, what is even happening? Like, I don't even know what's going on, right? Did you? anybody watch, what was that World Cup thing? Like everyone was into it. It was right, it was after Kabbalah. Like we, I, we had a Kabbalah class here. I go home, the kids are into it. It's like 90 minutes, 90 minutes is a soccer match, right? It's after 90 minutes. The announcers are like, we don't know when it's gonna end. I'm like, how does no one know when it's gonna end? Who's in charge? I still don't know, by the way, I literally still don't know the answer to that question. Somebody can tell me after the class. Spies part two, here's what happens. Point is, this is bonus time. This is like the very exciting time of the, of the Kabbalah class. And Joshua, this is Joshua chapter two. This is like right after the five books of Moses close. Joshua, this is what we got. Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua was like the primary student of Moses, the next Jewish leader. Sent two men out of Shittim to spy secretly, saying, go see the land in Jericho. He sent spies. Who does that? Who sends spies? And they went and came to the house of an innkeeper named Rahab. And they lay there. and They spent the night there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here this night from the children of Israel to search the land, to spy the land. And the king of Jericho sent, sent to Rahab. He sent messengers, saying, Bring forth the men who have come to you that have entered your house, for they have come to search out the entire land. She tells them to hide on the roof. She says, I, "I didn't see them, or they were here, but then they went that way." She misdirects the the, the, the search party. These guys escape. They promise her that when the Jews conquer Jericho, they'll say they'll spare her and her family because of that they saved their lives. At this point, they go back. They give a report, and the report is Rahab. Rahab. Rahab tells the the two spies that, "Oh, you're Jews. We've been afraid of you guys ever since." The Exodus. Ever since the splitting of the sea, our hearts have melted. They go back to tell Joshua, the people are afraid of us. And others, we're going to go in, and it's going to be, you know, we'll be blessed with this, and it all works out. So the she court. Believes, she believes in the Jewish God. Yes, and the spy mission worked out. We have two questions that we're not going to answer today. Question number one: Why in the world? More than two questions. Number one: Why in the world would Joshua send spies? if the first mission 40 years earlier blew up catastrophically? Who would do that again? Take a different approach, send a drone. I don't know, really figure it out, right? Okay. Rolling the dice, it's really rolling the dice. That's, real. That's a real risk right there. Who does that? That's question number one. Question number two, why did Moses' spies fail and Joshua, Joshua's spies succeed? And the most important question is, what does it, what does it tell us about our own lives? Because it's great to learn about a story. You know, history is his story. But we want to talk about us. What does this mean for us, for you and I? What does it mean to send out spies like Moses and to fail, to send out spies like Joshua and, and succeed? What are these two types of spies? You what are the two missions? No. Next week. Same no, bedtime. No no, we no, no, no. Okay, so I'll, cla- I'll clarify in a second. But let's close it down, then I'll clarify what's going on with the schedule. So, These are the questions that are at the core of this discourse, which we still have not opened up and jumped into. This is our third week of intro. But please God, next week, we will crack this open and begin studying inside this mystical discourse and and engage in these very questions and explore their answers. The discoveries that we will make will be spectacular and life-changing. What did Moses do wrong? What did Joshua do right what makes a spy mission, which as we saw today means life, successful or a failure, right? What constitutes the distinction between success and failure with this mission of going in and infiltrating and still being without, still maintaining your perspective, not losing yourself in that mission? These que- and, and of course, how do we apply this to our personal lives and spiritual lives? This all will be explored over the next few weeks as we jump into our discourse. I can't wait to continue the exploration with you. Shavuot tov, and hope you enjoyed it today. Thank you. All right, now so a quick pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much, Mariana. Enjoy the Holy Land. Oh. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm here in <laughs> trying to find connection, and it's it's amazing to be here. We are now in Engedi. Oh wow, and, Engedi. Beautiful. Connecting in Kabbalah class that is the best the life. Amazing! 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 Beautiful! So so great to see you. My regards and sending love to everybody. Thank you, thank you. The same to your family. Thank, thank you, you, thank you. So just quickly about about the uh, the schedule. Nice, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, you talked about the the, the, physical, the energy from the food and all that sort of thing, and you, at oh, one point you, you talked about, too, about what happens on a fast day mm. uh, when you're not having that food? Good. You've got to, what so happens on a fast a day? day, right? And so, where do, you, where do you get the sparks? Yeah. The idea is Yom Kippur, for B'Av, these days of, of fasting, we don't get the sparks from, from the food. We have to either take a break from the sparks or, you know, on Yom Kippur, it's a day in which we don't, like Shabbat also, it's a day in which, although we're eating, but it's, there's certain days in the calendar where we're not going into the darkness to extricate the sparks. It's more of like dabbling in those light spaces. But just quickly, because some people may have to go, about, this, about the schedule. We will be going throughout this, well, this class will be going throughout the summer, unless I'm out of town, which I will be out of town. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you in a second my schedule, personal schedule. But otherwise, we're gonna be going through the summer. The other class that takes place, the Colel and, and that class, So that is not gonna be happening through this. It's taking a break for the next several weeks. And the hot breakfast also, because that's a larger operation. A lot of the kitchen folks are not around over the summer uh, from this time. So that will be taking a break. However, we will still be having our own breakfast here. Won't necessarily be a hot breakfast. It'll be bagels. (laughs) That's uh, a test, right? Will you come back without fr- hot eggs so, and, and hash browns? So we're gonna be have bagels, lox, cream cheese, veggies, coffee, tea, still enough to, to keep everyone well-fed and hopefully satisfied. Listen, I will provide the sparks. You have to extricate them. Anyway, so yeah, we will still having food and the class. My schedule is as follows. I will be in Boston uh, for about a week and a half. Starting on July seventh through the sixteenth, so that is um, that includes two Sundays, seventh right. and ninth, and the sixteenth. So those two Sundays I'm gone. Now, oh, here's my question to you guys: the week before that, July second, oh, I don't know if we can do July second because I think there's a sim here. That's July fourth weekend. Yeah. Guys out of town ish, some yeah. yes, some no. No, will yeah. be here. You're in town? No, oh, we have. Uh, Okay, I have to say, I know there's like a, there's a wedding or something going on in this building on that day, J- uh, J- uh, July 2nd specifically. So we may have to think of creative, I'll be in town, so I don't mind, you know, I'm happy to teach. We may have to think creatively about where to do it if we can't do it in this, in this specific, because they may be using this for part of the wedding uh, setup. Um, we have to move to a different space, but I will be in touch. But we're definitely on next week, which is the 25th. The question is about the second, I will let you know. Um, I'll send out an email or we'll talk about it next week at the class. And then the the ninth and the 16th, I'm out of town, but then after that, we're back and going consistent. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Save the dates! (laughs) All right, great to see you. Well, let me just say say, uh, shalom to everybody online. Manuela, Larry, Matt, great to see you. Dr. Maxi, great to see you. Hey, Mariana, John and Lisa, Frank, Tony, Andrea. Fantastic, fantastic, great to see you. Pleasure, oh, I see some chats. Thank you, for, of course, Andrea. Um, Thank Tony, Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. Tony. Oh, amazing. Love that. Good, good, good. All right, we'll see you guys. Beshalom, Shavuot and uh, we'll catch you guys soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, recording. Rabbi, hey. there is a speaker here talking about